I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On today's podcast, I'm starting our rewatch of the final season of The Leftovers as we deep dive into the episode, The Book of Kevin. My name is Justin Hamilton, and if something does happen, you've come to the right place here at Big Squid. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited to start the final season of The Leftovers with you today. I just love this series so much. In case you hadn't noticed, have I told you that? I'll just say it again. I love this series and I cannot wait to unpack each episode with you. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. You can uh, write to me via Twitter. You can write to me via Instagram. uh, And you can go to our Facebook page and you can leave your thoughts and ideas there. This has a lot going on. This first episode, there is so much happening and it sets up our... Next seven episodes, there's only eight episodes in this season, Uh, so there's a lot to dive into and we will get to that as quickly as possible. Before I do though, just a reminder that this Saturday, the 24th of July at 8pm Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have another remote viewing party. This time we're watching the original Superman together. To be a part of it, all you have to do is join the private Big Squid Facebook page download the podcast, press play at 8pm on the podcast, not the movie. At 8pm, you press play on the podcast and have the movie ready. And then you'll hear me talk to you and I'll give you a bit of time to set up. And then there will be a moment on the podcast that I will say, press play on the movie and everything syncs up, and we can all watch together, and we can write to each other on the Facebook page. I'll set up a thread where we can chat away. I know I sound like I'm being, you know, (laughs) just kind of spelling it out a little bit by saying this is how it works, but 
<laughs> and this is not a problem. It's been funny. But when I don't spell it out, oh, I do feel like I've spelled it out. But there's so many times when <laughs> there's been some people writing to me and I'm like, I think you're 20 minutes ahead. Anyway. It's funny. It's not a bad thing, but if you want to be a part of it, that's how we do it, and it's fun, and we'd love to have you there. There's a great group of people, and it does feel like we're doing something in this lockdown, so uh, it'd be great to have your company. We've already done The Untouchables. We've done Raiders of the Lost Ark. They've both been fun. Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman, Superman. It'll be a fun way to spend a Saturday night. Let's get into The Leftovers now as we begin Season 3 with the episode entitled The Book of Kevin. What will happen on October 14th, just a couple of weeks from now? Probably nothing. But if something does happen on October 14th, you've all come to the right place. On the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure, the rains will come, and with them, a great flood. Where are those happy days? They seem so hard to find. So this is the last time we're ever going to see each other, huh? What do you mean? Just the world is ending. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You are the only man alive. Who could make it stop? I shot you in the chest. You got up, walked back into town. You drank poison, buried you, and you went to the other place. I'm not Jesus. I'm not saying you are, but uh, the beard looks good on you. Death is easy. People just want finality. An end to their grief. With departures, there is no end. I think I'm going crazy. How are you not going crazy? You're gonna have to hold me down. If I could do this instead of you, I would. We begin in Adelaide, Australia, 1844. We see a village settlement as a happy family goes about their day. This family are part of the Millerite movement and they are preparing for a momentous event that is about to occur. Jesus will return to wipe the world clean of sin on the 21st of January. The blackboard of the preacher is a mix of the writings of the Bible and a mathematical equation that concludes that the Messiah's return is in fact correct and about to happen. The young family in the church look at each other and begin to prepare and start giving away their possessions. They dress in all white. And on that very fateful day, they climb to the top of their home so Jesus can see them clearly when he returns. The wife looks around uh, and across the village and there are many families all dressed in white preparing for the moment. The next morning, the tired family climbs down from the roof, dejected and ridiculed for their beliefs. Nothing happened. Of course nothing happened. 
But when a carrier pigeon arrives with a message, a new hope is delivered. The Millerites had the wrong date, but now they have the correct one. The 16th of April. The family rejoice, dress in white, and climb to the top of the roof of their home in preparation. The wife looks around at the village. There are less people joining them this time, but unperturbed, the wife prepares to be saved by Jesus. The next morning, the tired and dejected family climb down from the roof. In the parish, there is a new date on the blackboard, the 7th of August. Unfortunately, there are less people in the church to hear this proclamation. The husband is aghast at all of this and takes his son elsewhere, but his wife is a believer, and this time they cannot be wrong. The wife climbs the ladder by herself and stands on the rooftop. She looks out at the village and realises she's the only person who has gone through with this. She watches as the clouds roll over and the thunder fills the air, lightning flashes as the rain falls down, but her faith is resolute and she will not come down. Jesus is on his way, and she will be saved. The next morning, the woman climbs down off the roof. She is soaked through, cold, her body racked in pain. She walks past her husband and son, who turn away. They can't bear to look at her. They do nothing to ease her physical or emotional pain. She walks through the mud to the church and opens the door. On the blackboard, the words have been scrawled. The great disappointment. She ignores the blackboard and lays on the ground next to the rest of the Millerites, all dressed in white, full of despair that the Messiah didn't return. She moves in closest to the person on the end, and the camera pans across these bodies, all clad in white. And then the Millerites become the guilty remnant and were back in Jardin. It is the day after Meg's act of emotional terrorism on the town of Miracle. Evie wakes and slips on her glasses. She sees Meg standing to one side, savouring a cigarette. She sees Evie is awake and says, good morning. You can talk. Evie ignores her and writes, what are you waiting for? Meg ignores the question and tells a story about the magician double act Siegfried and Roy. She tells Evie about how they'd perform with this beautiful tiger that they'd make disappear and then reappear, that they'd lay down on them like their carpets. While Meg tells his story, there is a subtle noise behind them. It's a drilling sound. They look to the wall and see a hole appear with a thin beam of light. A thin camera looks in at the colt. It's just a matter of time before one of those fuckers bites your face off, says Meg. Evie is confused, apprehensive. She runs outside to see government agents quickly jumping into their cars and driving away. Evie catches something glinting in the sky and looks up to see a drone flying toward her. The drone fires a missile, and Evie spends her last few seconds on Earth realising how she is about to die. Three years later, a bearded Kevin Garvey, he's back being a policeman, looks at the bomb site where the guilty remnant were murdered. Lost in thought, he climbs on top of his white horse, Annie, and begins to lead visitors to Jarden into the town square. They no longer need wristbands, and he calmly shows them the way. The town square is packed with people running stalls or camped out in tents. The pillar man is still there, but a giant inflatable man stands alongside him. Kevin makes his way toward an officer dealing with the two men who own the inflatable doll. The officer is Tommy, who has since coming to Miracle become a cop. 
He tells the young men to deflate the giant blow-up doll, but they claim that this inflatable doll is in fact a visage of Gary Busey. And in 14 days, on the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure, he will return. And this is how he'll be able to find where he has to land. Kevin diffuses the situation by making the men feel heard and leads Tommy away. As he does so, he finds a flyer on the ground that says there is 14 days to go. Kevin knows exactly who loves to print flies. He makes his way to the church to see Matt Jamison, but has to walk through a throng of people who wait outside, listening to Matt preach from the Book of Daniel over the loudspeakers. They're enthralled, but Kevin is annoyed. Inside the church is packed with people. Matt tells them he has a feeling, just like when he brought Mary to Jarden, just like when Mary gave birth to their son Noah. Mary looks disinterested in standing up to prove Matt's point, but she does so anyway. Matt continues to point out the importance of the number seven in the Bible, and with the seventh anniversary looming, he feels something is going to happen, and if it does, it will happen here in Miracle. He also says that maybe something won't happen, but if something does happen, then you've come to the right place. He looks at Kevin as he says these words. Kevin goes into the office and sees Michael, who immediately closes his laptop. Kevin makes a joke about him looking at porn, but Michael doesn't really get the joke. (laughs) Kevin wants to make certain that everyone is coming over for a surprise party for Tommy for his birthday. Matt walks in and immediately apologises for the church being over capacity. Kevin just wants Matt to stop advertising that something is going to happen in 14 days. He can't have the town ripping itself apart again after what happened three years ago. Matt swears he didn't put the flyers out, but Kevin doesn't care. He just needs Matt to tone it down. When Kevin leaves, Matt turns to Michael and says, did he see it? Michael shakes his head. No, Kevin didn't. Later that day, Kevin speaks to his police force and then hands the floor over to Nora, who has resumed her role working at the Department of Sudden Departures. She reminds the police about the process they have to go through in case somebody claims that someone they know has departed. The meeting ends and Kevin scratches Nora's back for her, the plaster cast on her arm preventing her from getting to that itch. The couple openly flirt. They look very much in love, happy, peaceful. Kevin gets a message that someone has come to see him and that it is an old friend from Mapleton. When Kevin goes to his office, he discovers Dean, the man he used to go shooting rabid dogs with, the man he was with when he kidnapped Paddy. Kevin would find Dean when he was sleepwalking, but that was a different Kevin, and he has flashes of that life he left behind. Dean hugs Kevin and tells him he's been undercover tracing a senator that he believes is a rabid dog that can transform into a man. Dean believes the dogs are smarter now and they're taking up places of importance in government to bring about the end of the world on the anniversary of the sudden departure. Dean has even brought a peanut butter sandwich that the senator had eaten part of to prove his point. It is supposedly full of canine DNA. Kevin makes a light joke at Dean's expense and then points out to him that this story he believes is in his head, that it isn't real. But as he says this, he flashes to pushing young Paddy down into the well in that place that hovered between life and death. Kevin returns his focus and tells Dean to come and talk to him tomorrow. He'll sort some help out. He looks at Dean who pulls out a dog whistle and blows a silent tune. Kevin sadly watches Dean as he walks out of the office. In another room somewhere in Jarden, we see a man press his painted hand against a sheet of paper, leaving a wet print. 
It is hung up to dry and we see it as John Murphy who speaks to his new visitor. The man claims he doesn't believe in what John can do, but he only came to see him because his wife insisted. As he expresses his scepticism, John mentions Pat Benatar. The man is shocked. John explains he can't talk directly, but he can drown out the noise of the world to hear voices from the other side. The man begins to get emotional. His father loved Pat Benatar, and he asks John why his dad did what he did on his birthday. We see Kevin enter the room and quietly make his way upstairs. He walks up to a closed door and lets himself in. Inside is Laurie, and she's online, and she's also watching John through a camera. She's looking up the client's information, and from the information she's gathered, Laurie can provide an answer. She tells John to tell the man that the father was sad, that he felt like he'd failed his family, and he was so broken that when he took his own life, he didn't even realise it was his son's birthday. He just wanted to escape. Kevin watches on, his face impassive. When she is finished, she watches as John hugs the man who was crying, giving him catharsis. Kevin tells Laurie about Dean and his belief about the canine people, but Laurie tells Kevin off for telling Dean he was crazy. Of course, Kevin points out that is exactly what Laurie did to him, but then she counters by saying yes, and then you went and drank poison, which proves her point. Kevin states that he's fine now, that everything is normal and he's at peace. John walks upstairs and kisses Laurie. Not only are they together, but they shred the money, refusing to profit off their work. That night, Tommy arrives for his surprise party. Everyone is in good spirits, and even more so when Jill arrives from her university campus. Later, the men sit on the veranda and share stories about what they were doing at Tommy's age of 25. Matt tells a story about eating cow brains in Guatemala that made him hallucinate. Kevin tells a story about being in a minor car accident with a woman who had a two-year-old in the car, a calm baby that barely noticed what had happened. That baby was Tommy, the woman was Laurie, and a year later, they were a family. Divine intervention, says Kevin. Michael and Matt share a look. It is a knowing look, and even though Kevin picks up on the weirdness of the moment, he soon moves on. Later that night, he says goodbye to Jill, who was going to drive back to campus. She asks if this is the last time they'll see each other. Kevin is confused. Because the world is ending, she adds. The anniversary is looming for everyone. Kevin laughs. Jill asks if Nora talks about Lily. Kevin says no and wonders if he should bring her up. He kisses Jill goodbye and stands in the middle of the road, watching his daughter drive away. Later that night, Nora wants to know what the men were talking about. Kevin tells her and Nora teases him about how romantic it was the first time he met Laurie. Kevin responds that it was better than when he met Nora at the divorce court and she told him to go fuck his daughter. Nora laughs but corrects Kevin. They met at the fundraiser dance and he confessed that night that he cheated on his wife. They hold each other, kiss and then make love. That night, Kevin lays awake with Nora asleep in his arms and eventually falls asleep. When he wakes, he's in bed and Nora is getting up to go for a bike ride. He watches Nora from the balcony as she rides off. He walks over to the wardrobe, gets out a new dry clean police uniform and removes the protective plastic. He then retrieves a box with gaffer tape in it, places the plastic over his head and gaffer tapes it to his neck. He breathes slowly, deeply, as the oxygen is slowly sucked in and the plastic clings to Kevin's face. 
We next see Kevin in uniform leaving his home. He's radioed information that says there's an incident happening down at the waterhole. Kevin races there immediately and finds Matt's congregation in an argument with a new branch of the guilty remnant, all dressed in red with images of Evie on the front. They've dropped toxic waste into the water to let everyone know that this isn't a holy place. This is a place where the government used a drone strike to murder innocent people. As violence breaks out, Kevin looks on and in a moment of clarity, walks the waterhole's edge and jumps into the water. Everyone stops as he makes his way over to the toxic barrel and he reveals that it is just a prank. Michael sees Kevin in the water and walks out to him. Kevin isn't impressed, but he lets Michael make a symbolic gesture by baptising him in front of everyone. As he stands up, Kevin tells Michael, that didn't count. Kevin and Tommy drive back into the town centre and Tommy says that he believes the kids who think the guilty remnant were murdered. Kevin recites the official story that there was a gas leak and a lit cigarette ignited the area incinerating everyone. Tommy says that was bullshit. He also wants to know how Kevin knew that the barrel was a prank. Kevin said he just knew and Tommy again thinks that this is bullshit. Suddenly, a gunshot sounds as the front window to the car explodes inwards. The police car comes to a halt as Dean begins to fire his rifle again. Kevin grabs his gun, but it isn't loaded, and Dean bears down on him. You've changed, you son of a bitch, says Dean as he raises his rifle. But before he can fire, his head explodes as Tommy takes him out. Later, Tommy is in shock and shares a cigarette with his father. Kevin tells him to see a psychiatrist because when you kill someone, you need to talk about it. Tommy didn't know that Kevin had shot someone before. So Kevin shares a little about his experiences. But we flash to what he's thinking about. He's thinking about when he was in the other place, when he murdered Paddy's double and her entourage. Kevin tells the story as if it were true. Tommy looks at Kevin, uncertain of what he's just heard. They turn around as a stray dog walks up to Dean's dead body and runs off with the half-eaten peanut butter sandwich. Kevin returns home to find Nora talking to Mary. It turns out that Mary is leaving Matt and taking Noah. She can't be a part of his story anymore. Kevin tries to reason with her, but Mary explains that Matt won't let them leave Jarden because he's convinced both of them will die if they leave the town. She also reveals that Matt is writing a gospel about Kevin, a fact that does not sit well. He asks Nora if she knew about this and she shakes her head. She had no idea. Mary explains that he was pretty excited when he discovered that Kevin had risen from the dead. Kevin makes his way to the church and finds Matt and Michael preparing for the next sermon. Kevin wants to know what is happening and Matt eventually confesses that he has been writing a story about him, a new gospel, but there's only one copy. John arrives with food and Kevin brings him into what is going on by telling him about the book. Yet John doesn't blink. He's a believer too. He says, I shot you in the chest and you walked back into town without getting hospital assistance until the next day. Matt says that Kevin tried to drown himself and then the water in Jarden mysteriously disappeared. Michael says that Kevin drank water and he then buried him in the dirt. Kevin is upset with Michael because he knows he told Matt about his journey to the other place. Kevin states that of course he can die, but Matt counters that he can't die in miracle. Kevin then points out that he isn't Jesus, and Matt points out that the beard does look good on him. Kevin snaps and attacks Matt, but John and Michael break it up. We can't be going through this for nothing, says John. 
He doesn't even believe Evie is dead. He thinks the government is making it up when they matched her dental records, and if she could disappear once before, she could do it again. Michael brings Matt's book to Kevin and hands it to him to read. Matt points out that he hasn't added the baptism yet, but otherwise it is up to date. You're insane, says Kevin, leaving with the book. He walks outside and sees a fire in an incinerator. He walks over to throw the book in, but he stops, staring at the flame, lost in his thoughts. He looks up, and there in the sky is a plane, writing a message. Thirteen days to go. The sky transitions to another place that is seasoned with doves. They land at a shack, and a figure watches them return. She removes the messages attached to their legs and throws them away. She puts the doves in cages, attaches them to the back of her bike, and rides off. We look at her riding down a long road, no houses around, just beautiful lush green surroundings. We're no longer in America. This is rural Australia. We see the woman ride up to a church and make her way around the back where a nun goes about her day. She unloads the doves and the nun is chatty, but the woman doesn't reciprocate. The nun hands over some money to the woman, but before she can ride off, the nun asks, Sarah, does the name Kevin mean anything to you? We see the woman's face. It is Nora, older, weathered, tired. She stops when she hears the name, but her face doesn't flinch. There is no emotion, no response. Her eyes are vacant. She eventually responds to the nun's question and says, No. Well, how's that for a first episode, right? The first two seasons of The Leftovers feel like complete stories that concluded with happy endings. So in the first season, Kevin and Jill returned home with their tame dog to find Nora and Lily, and they suddenly form a new family unit. Then the ending of season two sees Kevin cheat death twice and finally return home to discover he not only has a family that loves him, but that family is twice as big as he once believed. Both endings were satisfying and beautiful, and if each season had been a proper ending, I would still have put the leftovers in my pantheon of my favourite TV shows ever. But just as in life, there are never easy answers and life continues to have its challenges, its ups and downs, and in hindsight, there are too many stories still to tell about our favourite characters. Pain and grief is never conquered. At best, you can take these emotions and funnel them in positive ways to enrich your life, but they never disappear completely. If there is anything we know about Kevin, Nora, and the rest of the gang, there is still a way to go before they can honestly find a sense of peace in their world. Before we dive into this, let's go to the beginning of the episode with the Millerites in my hometown of Adelaide representing in The Leftovers and the Millerites' belief that Jesus is about to return. I'll tell you more about this movement in the Squid Bits part of the podcast, but let's look at the themes of what happens in this opening. Throughout history, generations of people consistently believe the end times are coming. As Reza Aslan explains in his book Zealot, even back in the days of Jesus Christ, all of his followers believed that the world was about to end. Here we see a precursor to the guilty remnant, a deeply religious family that believes in the Lord and have been given irrefutable proof that Jesus is returning. Watching them stand on top of their homes, hoping Jesus will see them when they return, elicits a cacophony of emotions. 
His failure to return sees each individual cope with what happens in different ways. Some become unbelievers. Others double down on their belief. If you ever thought that the guilty remnant seems strange or not realistic, we have seen proof over and over that when people are lost and look for anything to believe in, they will buy into the headiest of ideas and create the proof they need to reinforce these beliefs. That we segue into the guilty remnant makes the point substantial. In any other circumstances, Evie would have benefited from therapy, but instead she's drawn into the cold and weaponized against those who don't believe. The guilty remnant believe that the world ended on the day of the sudden departure, but it is only Evie who sees that their lives are about to end on that day. What does she believe in that moment? Is she galvanized by her decision? Does she regret them? This is a question we'll be coming back to later in the series. There is a direct tie back to the Millerite wife and Evie, both are young women who have allowed their beliefs to disconnect them from their families. The Millerite wife has to find solace with other dejected believers while Evie sees proof of what happens when you poke the tiger. Eventually, it bites your fucking face off. Matt is in an interesting place. He is someone who rejects any other belief system that doesn't adhere to his own, but he's an intense man, a man who still doesn't understand why a pious person like himself didn't depart. His love of Mary is unquestionable, but you can't help but nod your head when you discover she wants to leave with their son. His fanaticism and inability to listen to ideas and thoughts that conflict with his own have strangled the life out of Mary. She's a prisoner of miracle and you want her to leave so she can breathe again. Even naming their son Noah feels like a burden when you place it in the context of Matt's beliefs. They need to leave to live. And Matt once again pushes away those he loves. But he now has something else to latch on to. The seventh anniversary of the sudden departure easily slots into his belief system as he outlines to the church all the different mentions of the number seven in the Bible. Is Matt any different to the Millerite's mathematical equation that declares Jesus is returning? Matt is more realistic and inadvertently laugh out loud funny when he states that nothing will probably happen, but if it does, you've come to the right place. He doesn't know if anything will happen, but he hopes it will, and justify what he is thinking. The way he constantly looks at Kevin throughout the episode, oh, what good luck it is if Kevin really is the Messiah. Maybe that is why Matt didn't depart. Maybe he stayed to help guide the new Jesus. Matt isn't alone in his theories. We've seen John Murphy do a complete turnaround from the previous season. His wife is gone and he is now partnered with Laurie, another broken person looking for salvation. He has taken on the con that he once railed against. He has been completely changed by what he has seen with his own eyes. He shot Kevin in the stomach and he returned from the dead. Just as his son buried Kevin in the dirt only to see him rise when the earth tremor hit, John knows that Kevin not only rose from the dead, but he also showed him charity, offering him a place to call home if he found himself alone. We can't underestimate the death of Evie either. The consequences of the last season finale have shaken him to his core and he holds out hope that maybe Evie has disappeared again and is now living somewhere safe, somewhere she can't be found. The man who once refused to believe has become a believer. Who can blame these people for finding ways to cope? This is a world that is in agony as it heads towards the seventh anniversary. 
This is Y2K writ large because this is a world that has proof that anything can happen. Imagine if we'd seen computer issues in the 90s make planes drop from the sky or fire missiles that weren't ever supposed to be used. Our world would have been in a proper full-blown panic at the clock as it counted down from 1999 to 2000. There is tension in the air at every turn from the benign sky rider to the disciples of Gary Busey. Personally, I believe that I don't care what you believe as long as it doesn't impinge upon anyone else's beliefs. It's how I feel, uh, and I guess there is a naivety to that, but I also think there is a purity. When we see John retreat into his world, it is his only way of coping. But at least he and Laurie have found a way to bring strangers solace, even if that piece is based on a lie or to be little more charitable, a fiction. In the end, we are all made up of the stories we tell ourselves. In the end, we're all fictional in our own way. What does it mean to have someone telling your story? You can understand why Kevin would be so furious at his friends for writing about him, for thinking these grandiose thoughts, for trapping him in their beliefs. Matt, in many ways, has shifted from Mary to Kevin, and this is the last thing Kevin needs. While his life with Nora and Jarden looks peaceful, there are signs already that not everything is right. We still don't know what happened to Lily. Tommy might be a policeman, but he still looks uneasy with himself. Think about this. He went from believing in Holy Wayne to doing his mother's bidding to following Meg, and now he's followed his stepfather into the force. Tommy quite clearly still hasn't found his own way. We also see that the guilty remnant now have a new chapter and a new belief. They believe that Meg, Evie, and the rest of them were murdered that day. And you know what? They're correct. But their prank amounts to nothing other than a skirmish with Matt's congregation. For Matt, his life has flipped. When we first saw him in season one, his congregation was steadily losing people and he was handing flyers out about what the departed were really like as human beings. Now his congregation is full and he has to contend with young people wearing t-shirts that state what really happened on that fateful day three years ago. But we come back to Kevin, who to the outside world does look at peace. Yet how can he be when he has died twice and returned to tell the tale? Did he go to the other place, or is this some Freudian psychological dreamscape that helps him make sense of his life? We know Kevin isn't fundamentally crazy. His face-to-face with Dean shows us that he has little patience for those types of people. I feel for Dean in this scene because who knows what conversations they used to have when Kevin was blacked out. But Kevin has seemingly moved forward, right? Yet when he tells Tommy the time he shot people, and we know he's talking about what he got up to in the episode International Assassin, don't you begin to wonder where his head is really at? He doesn't tell Tommy it was a dream. He tells him it really happened. He might say he's fine, but he's still haunted by that event. Even the randomness of a dog stealing that supposed sandwich covered in shape-shifting canine DNA gives Kevin a moment to pause. The mind can't help but draw conclusions based on facts that are often just coincidences. It is a subtly confronting moment to see that Kevin's wardrobe looks like the one in the hotel. It is even more confronting when he wraps his head in plastic so he can't breathe. Many people would think this is suicidal behaviour, but I don't think that is the case. I think Kevin wants to return to that place where he was in total control, where he was something greater than he is in the real world. After you've died and returned twice, maybe there is an exhilaration about being alive that you normally don't feel. 
The key is how he leaves the house looking like a man ready for action. He quite clearly doesn't want to die. We know that because he doesn't stare down Dean when it looks like he might be shot, but he's not afraid anymore, and he jumps into potentially toxic water to prove a point. Kevin is telling himself he's fine, but his shamanic journey back and forth between the worlds has changed him. If Kevin has his friends believing he is the new messiah, then you know there must be thousands of these stories taking place all over the world. When Jesus said he was the son of God, there were many other prophets all claiming the same title. It is good to remember that this story isn't unique to Kevin, but we're going to follow the story of this reluctant messiah and how he can find a balance between his own mental health and the burden of the responsibilities his friends project onto him. And just who was Sarah riding her push bike with cages of doves, a woman who looks remarkably like our Nora, older, worn down, alone in Australia? Is this the character we've come to love? Is this someone else? If it is Nora, what has happened? And why does the name Kevin fail to ring any bells? We will cover that in the weeks to come. But as we are coming up to the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure, we have seven more episodes to discover how this will all end. Okay, it's time to bring back the Squid Bits segment. We haven't done this for a while, and I've got quite a lot here for you, actually. Uh, The Millerite were followers of William Miller, who in 1831 shared his belief that the second coming of Jesus Christ would occur around 1843 to 44. William Miller came to prominence during the Second Great Awakening, a Protestant religious revival during the early 19th century in the United States. This was a time when religion was spread through revivals and emotional preaching, and also sparked a number of reform movements. William Miller's beliefs were taken as predictions and spread widely. It was also widely believed that Jesus would return, and when he didn't, this led to the Great Disappointment. Uh, The Great Disappointment paved the way for the Adventists, the Protestant Christians who believed that Jesus was still on his way back, to contend that what happened on October 22nd was not Jesus' return, but the beginning of Jesus' final work of atonement, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary leading up to the second coming. Uh, Here's a quote that I think you might find interesting in relation to the opening scene of this episode. This is by Henry Emmons, a Millerite, who wrote, and this is about uh, that date on October 22nd, I waited all Tuesday and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint and before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Uh, Birds as carriers of messages play out with the Millerite family and Sarah removing them from their legs. Uh, That is the original Twitter or tweet, if you like, if you ever wondered where the name Twitter came from. Uh, When Kevin is baptised, he flashes back to his emerging from the tub in the hotel. That's a sort of baptism right there. Uh, there are a few references to the flood narrative in the Bible. Matt's son is called Noah. The opening song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready by Good News Circle, begins with a reading from Matthew that emphasizes that man cannot predict the date of the coming of the Son of Man and also reference, references the flood in Genesis. The flood story will, of course, play a big part in this coming series. 
Uh, The Millerite preacher also has charts depicting the opening of the seven seals from the book of Revelation, which is pertinent. Lots of quotes from the Bible emphasizing the importance of seven years as well. Um, If you didn't know it, but the story Meg tells about Siegfried and Roy did actually happen in 2003 when one of the Tigers attacked Roy and ended their careers. Jill wears a Nirvana t-shirt, which is appropriate with the end times upon us. Uh, Mary McKillop was an Australian Catholic nun in the 19th and early 20th century and is our only saint. Weird that an Anglican church is named after her since she is canonised as a saint by the Catholic Church. The real-world location of this church is St. Paul's Anglican Church, so maybe it has something to do with that. Or maybe it's saying that maybe the Anglican and the Catholic Church merged. Who knows? But, you know, this world's not exactly like ours, so anything could have led to that. Uh, Season 2 began in the distant past and transitioned to Evie, and then Season 3 plays out exactly the same way. Both times Evie, of course, being in the present. Kevin rides a white horse. Apply these things, uh, this bit of information, however you feel comfortable. But in the Bible, a white horse is a symbol of victory and also in Christianity, a symbol of death. Psychologically, it represents knowledge, faith, spiritual growth and intellectualism. In North American tribes, a horse represents power and tribes that possessed horses often won more battles than those who didn't. With the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first horseman rides a white horse. Uh, We had a surprise party in Season 1 and Season 3. Season 1 was Kevin Garvey Sr., who also suspected what was going on, just as Tommy did in this episode. We now know that Dean does indeed exist, and Dean is indeed crazy. No wonder they couldn't find any information about him. He's quite clearly been living off the grid for a while. Season 2 began with a birthday party at the Murphy house. This season begins with a birthday party at the Garvey's house. Kevin wears a crown that he doesn't realise he is wearing. With the way his friends are looking at him, you will enjoy the fact that a crown can represent Jesus Christ. Kevin only realises it is there when his daughter points it out. When the guilty remnant attack Matt's congregation, Kevin jumps into the waterhole where he tried to kill himself once before. This time he does it to save others. Uh, For those of you who don't know, a baptism is a religious rite of sprinkling water onto a person's forehead or or of immersing them in water, symbolising purification or regeneration. Kevin has been immersed in water and reborn a few times in this series. It is easy to think Matt is crazy for reading symbolism and meaning into Kevin's journey so far, but then again, isn't that what we're doing as well as viewers? Ah, that's interesting, right? This episode is bookended with churches and nuns reading messages that doves deliver. So I guess over time, nothing really changes. Uh, In the book, Meg dies for the guilty remnants cause. Paddy designates she has to die as the next sacrifice like Gladys in season one. In the book, when Laurie can't bring herself to shoot Meg, she takes the gun and shoots herself. In the book, the guilty remnant hold the belief that the rapture will be followed by a seven-year tribulation, which is what Matt is fixated on in the series. In the book, Kevin and Laurie met at college. Uh, Also in the book, Nora regularly rides a bike. And also, Matt's wife and children left him because of his newsletter. And this time, she leaves him due to his fanaticism. And finally, the name Sarah in the Bible means lady, princess, and Princess of the Multitude. Multitude seems like an interesting word to have at this point. 
And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Only seven more episodes of The Leftovers to go and we will have completed our journey. Ah, like I can't wait to talk about these episodes, but I'm kind of bummed out that we're coming to the end. It's been so much fun. Thank you for being a part of it, and I hope you've enjoyed this series as much as I have. If this is your first time watching, I can't wait to hear your thoughts over the course of the final season. And if this is your second, third, fourth watching, I'd love to hear from you too and discover what you've discovered this time around. I'm sure you've discovered new things. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a top review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use. And also remember, we have one more podcast coming this week on Saturday night. We're doing another remote viewing party, 8pm Eastern Standard Time, and we're watching Superman together. All you have to do is download the podcast, join our private Facebook page, press play on the podcast, bang on 8pm, and then the audio will let you know when to press play on the movie. And we can all watch this together. We can write to each other. We can all hang out. It'll be fun. Let's finish today with a quote from author Richard Bach. Your only obligation in any lifetime is to be true to yourself. Being true to anyone else or anything else is not only impossible, but the mark of a fake messiah. Until then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 